We are continuing our study in 1 Timothy, and we've got this Sunday and next Sunday, and then we are, we are done with 1 Timothy. And so as we come into this next-to-last study on this word, uh, let me just kind of bring back and help us get some perspective on, on where Justin was last week and where I was the week before, because as we're coming down to this and wrapping it up, we need to make sure that we, we, we stay in the box, right, that we understand the argument that Paul is putting forward. There's a big problem as we come into this week because some of what Paul says, I know I'm going to read it to you and you're going to say, it doesn't apply to me. I woke up, it was cold, I, I left the house, I, I embraced what could have been a treacherous terrain and now I hear something that just doesn't apply to me. Well, let me, let me work against that and then we'll get into the text. You see, Paul refers, he starts off from the very beginning and he says, charge those who are rich in the present age. And so you hear that, and you're like, oh, I am not rich, neither in this age, nor the ages prior, nor the age to come, which for me would be 35. You know, probably not in any age that I have or any age of history would I be considered as is rich. Let me reestablish that, okay? Let me define richness for us this morning. Let me, let me put it in the context of why Paul is addressing it here. Last week, Justin went in, and, and Paul turns, he, he's addressed the heresy, and he pivots to Timothy, and he gives him this tremendous charge. And he says, look, Timothy, I, I charge you to this, pursue godliness, flee immorality, and this is your audience. He says, look, you've got God, you've got Jesus, they're looking at you, don't mess this up, right? That's intense. That's an intense audience. And if, if I got my mom and my dad watching me do something, that's nerve-wracking. But now I've got God, I've got Jesus watching me do something. It's terrifying. It's terrifying. It's almost as bad as the lights flickering off and on. It's terrifying. And so he writes and he addresses that to him. Now, right before that and why he's telling him what he's to pursue and what he's to flee is because Paul addressed the Ephesian heresy for the last time in this letter. And you'll remember that he went through and he described them and the type of stuff they're engaged in and the substance of their teaching. And then he gets to the end, he says, this is why they do it. It's not because they want to grow closer to God. It's because they want cash. It's because they want money. Paul says, he says, look, these heretics there in Ephesus, they pursue godliness because they think it's great gain. They pursue godliness because they want to drive a Mercedes. They pursue godliness because they want to have plenty of cash in their bank. They pursue, they pursue godliness because they want to have stuff. They want to have money. And Paul turns, he says, look guys, godliness, the pursuit of godliness is great gain when it is tempered, when it is set aside with contentment. Godliness is great gain when it's coupled with contentment. Now, as we address the, the subject of what it is to be rich and what it is to be poor, when I think of, of, of myself and I ask myself the question, Matt, are you rich? I say, no. Warren Buffett is rich. Heck, Jimmy Buffett is rich. This guy's eating a cheeseburger in paradise, and, and he has stuff that I could never dream of. He's rich. I'm not. I mean, and so I did all this study. I said, well, you know, but where do I fall kind of in the global spectrum of what it is to be rich. And so you read all these things like, oh, you know, there are people in Africa who live on a dollar a day. There are people in Africa who live on $10 a day. I don't know what it is about parts of Africa, but they always get the designation of what it is to truly be poor, right? What difference does that make to me here in Greenville, Texas? 
I couldn't live on a dollar a day. I mean, it'd be impossible. I couldn't even put a gallon of gas in my car for a dollar. I can't, you can't buy a candy bar for a dollar anymore. It just doesn't, it doesn't impact me very much. Increasingly, it is difficult to buy fast food for $10, right? It's just, it, for one person, sure, but if you're a big eater, well, you know, it's going to be difficult. But when we start thinking in terms of what was Paul addressing when he was getting to the subject of being rich and being poor, we recognize that the middle class is, is, is largely a, a late phenomenon. This isn't something that's really going on at the time Paul is addressing them. And so you've got poor, slightly less poor, slightly less less poor, and rich, right? Okay. But Paul, you'll remember, as he was addressing the Ephesians, as he's addressing these heretics, they produce godliness to get what? Some of you want to say gain, some of you want to say money. So let's just say money, okay? Paul addressed the Ephesian heretics because they were pursuing... They were pursuing, they said, show me the money, right? That's what they said. And they said, the money's in godliness. And so he goes in and he addresses it. And he says, godliness with contentment is great gain. With these things we shall be content. And those things are found in verse 8. And Paul says, food and clothing. Everybody here is clothed. Everybody here likely ate this morning. You ate yesterday. Everybody here for the sake of this text, is rich. Does everybody have food and clothing? Amen. Everybody have food and clothing? Some of you are like, oh, emperor's new clothes. I think they told me these look like clothes. Yes, we're all rich. If you have food and clothing with these things, you'll be rich. Let me read 17 through 19, and then we'll walk through them together. Paul writes, he says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. So Paul gets into this passage, and he recognizes that there is some disparity between the rich and the poor they're in Ephesus. And so he turns, he says, look, you guys that are rich, you recognize that, that as you heard Paul's teaching on those that are pursuing riches there in Ephesus as great gain, that this was problematic. That it was totally problematic for them. And so he, he's got to turn and talk about what do they do in light of the fact that they already have money in the bank, that they already have a great deal of money. And so Paul tells them, don't be Hottie. Charge them not to be hottie. Now, hottie's not a word we use just a whole lot anymore. I mean, you don't walk up to somebody and you say, Ben, stop being so hottie. And Ben's like, is this a compliment? Is it a teardown? Because, you know, while you want to date or marry a hottie, nobody wants to be referred to as being hottie. Like, makes sense? Okay, okay. Sometimes I say these things and I wonder if they just pass right over me and you. And so Paul essentially charges them not to be prideful. He says, Timothy, go to the rich people in your congregation. Charge them not to be prideful. Charge them not to look at the things they've amassed, the, the houses they lived in, the cars they drive, the clothes they wear, where they ate for dinner, where they celebrated their anniversary, the last vacation they took. Charge them not to, to look at these things in their life and think, I've made it. 
I'm, I'm, I'm self-sustainable, I'm self-sufficient. Charge them, Timothy, not to be prideful on these things. Charge them to look at the things that they have, the things that they've accomplished, the things that they've done in their life, their intellect, and anything. And all of these things could be a great problem. They could be a stumbling block to them recognizing the true pursuit. So Paul writes to him and says, Timothy, tell those rich in your congregation, tell those rich in your church to look at these things and not to be prideful on the basis of money. Not to be prideful on the basis of what they have. And he turns it. And he says, nor to set their hope on the uncertainty of riches. You see, this is the real problem. It's not that you look at all the stuff that you've been able to buy, all the stuff you've been able to afford, and you say, look at my ingenuity. Look at what I did through the work of my hands. I'm, I'm so talented. I'm, well, I mean, you know this. But it, it, it's not that they look at it and they have this self-evaluation of that, but they have moved past an overvaluation of self to establishing their hope, to establishing their hope on these things. You see, obviously, they have an inflated impression of where they are and the things that they've accomplished. But they've moved so far past it. You see, they recognize, maybe, the blessing of God in giving them this stuff. But they recognize, certainly, and they're moving certainly to establish their hope on these things. And that's the sole basis of their pride and their hubris. That they look at their ingenuity, they look at their intellect, they look at their success as measured by the world. And the temptation is to, is to look at these things, and especially in our culture, which it, it, it celebrates winners and, and, and it holds in disdain. It thinks there's something wrong with those that lose. Now, if you're a college football fan, you likely experience this on a week-in and week-out basis. Now, if you're an Alabama fan, you haven't experienced what it is to be a loser in a while. But man, if you're a Texas A&M fan, or I'm sorry, Baylor people, if you finally came back to reality yesterday, then you know what it is to lose. And so if you set your hope on something that is, is purely passing, that is purely uncertain, then you're going to be disappointed. Paul recognizes that there were those in Ephesus that had established and set and founded their hopes on money. They had founded their hopes on the fact that they could provide for themselves. And so they recognized that, you know, that the government is in trouble. They say, look, I'm going to diversify. I'm going to bury some gold in my backyard. People always need gold. I, I don't personally need gold in my day-to-day -day life, but I'm sure that there are those that do. And so they begin to do things to insulate themselves against the changing world around them. I mean, we can see ourselves in this, can we not? The temptation to do things to provide for yourself. You look at your future and you say, oh man, I, I noticed that this market is getting soft over here, so I'm going to move money over there. And oh, this job market's not doing well, so I'm going to go pursue additional training over here to really shore up and make it where it is too painful for this company to fire me. To make it where it is too painful for them to let me go. And so we do things to try and insulate ourselves against change. And that is a good thing. But this is where it becomes a bad thing. It becomes a bad thing when you start setting your hope and, and your trust and your future on those things that you can affect on your own. 
Man, are you supposed to store up for tomorrow? Absolutely. Are you supposed to, to, to work hard and, and to save and provide? Absolutely. But if that's the place you've got your hope, then you're headed down the same path as those in Ephesus. You've established hope on something completely uncertain. There's only one place your hope should reside, and that is on God. And Paul recognizes that there were those in the church in Ephesus who had placed their hope on something completely transitory, something completely passing. Now look at what Paul does here in the second part of 17. He says, look, don't, don't set your hope on the uncertainty of riches, but instead on God, who richly provides us with everything. Paul says, look, you're setting your hope on riches. Don't do that. Set your hope instead on God. And Paul does this amazing thing. He goes in and he translates God in terms of who he is in his character. Paul says, he is God. He is the providing one. Paul says, set your hope on God's, the, the, the providing one. It is God who provides all of these things. You see, their temptation was to set their hope on the results of their hard work. Their temptation was to set their hopes on, on, on the things that had resulted from hard work, from their ingenuity, from their craftsmanship, from the good use of their time from being good stewards to saving up to making wise investments. Their temptation was to set their hopes on these things. Paul goes in. He says, look, you're setting your hope on a gift. But God is the one who provided these things. God's the one that gave you the ingenuity. God's the one who gave you the talent. God's the one who gave you the time. God is the one who helped you to see fruit come from your labors. God is the one who helped you to realize this money coming into your account. God is the one who provided all of these things. God provided you the air to breathe to do this work. God provided you the energy. God provided you the food. God provided you the ground to plant the seed to grow the food. Do you recognize this? Who is God? He's the one who provides. What are they setting their hope on? The provision instead of the provider. So Paul writes and he says, no. He says, it's God who provides in what way? He provides richly. Man, they're tempted to set their hope on riches instead of the one who richly provides. And what does he provide? The text tells us that God richly provides everything. Man, the difficulty, I don't care where you work, I don't care what you do. The difficulty is you get to the end of the day and you start thinking, I mean, look what I accomplished today. Or you go home and, and your spouse, or your friend says, what did you do today? Like, oh, you know, I, I did this, I did that. I, you know, if you do a whole lot of paperwork, it's, you know, I filed a TPS form. I, I did this. I sent two or three faxes. A little bit, you feel like George Shetson. I pushed the button like a thousand times today. Sprocket, sprocket, sprocket. It's not as exciting as going out and be like, I, I built a house. It was awesome. I saved lives. I mean, if you do paperwork, it's just not as glorious to talk about. You really need to do something on your way home. I changed a tire. Saw somebody on the side of the road. I changed that tire. Got my suit dirty. It was awesome. But when you get to the end of the day and you evaluate and you look at all the things that you've done, 
You look at all the ways you used your time and all the conversations you had. The temptation at the end of the day is to, is to look back and to be self-satisfied. And see, where we begin to go in the wrong direction is, is when our self-satisfaction excludes a right recognition of the role God played in enabling us to accomplish anything. Every day should end not in an evaluation of what we've accomplished, but what God has accomplished or affected through us. God is great in his movements of mercy in utilizing us to affect any end, to accomplish any goal. Amen? Amen? You guys are slow on the amen in response today. We're working on that. We've got 30, 45 minutes to go. By the end, you'll be just like that. And so Paul goes through and he says, look, they're to set their hopes on God. Who is God? God is the one that provides. And what has he provided? He has provided everything. For what purpose? This is amazing. Enjoyment. Enjoyment. Now, it's not the type of enjoyment that I remember being in high school and my dad showed up with a riding lawnmower and he said, look, son, what I've got you. It's for your enjoyment. And I did for like the first 30 minutes. But then August sets in and I'm still mowing grass on a riding lawnmower in August. And he's like, look at all the land we have. And I'm thinking, where did the little yard go with a push mower? I missed that. I miss the manual push mower. And here I am spending hours baking in the sun. You see, God doesn't provide these things and say, look, it's, it's for your enjoyment, sucker. It's for your enjoyment. Just take that and go with it and, and you know, just, it's for your enjoyment, quote, unquote. God provides these things for our enjoyment. I mean, this is an amazing testimony. Christians go around their jobs and all these things with this sense of drudgery and obligation for forgetting that God has given you these things for your enjoyment. God gave us creation for his glory and our enjoyment. We glorify God through the enjoyment of those things that he's given us, those things that he's provided with us. God didn't give us intellects. He didn't give us ingenuity. He didn't give us the ability to work so that we could sit back and, and say, look at how great I am, but so that we could say, look at how great he is, and we enjoy those things that he gives us through the exercise of them. Some of us have completely forgotten about this. We think that, that work is nothing but drudgery, but well, the way God writes it, the way that he set it up, it is meant to be done for enjoyment. Work is not, a, a, a process, it's not something that was produced as a result of the fall. Work existed prior to the fall. Now, work got harder, but we are still supposed to enjoy those things that God has given us. He gives them for enjoyment. He gives everything for enjoyment. Turning back to the rich, Paul says in verse 18, he says, look, you've got these rich out there. And they're not quite sure what they should do with themselves. Well, charge them to do good. Charge them to do good. He, lo he lays this blanket statement on them. And he turns to us too and he says, do good. Now that's, that's pretty wide open, isn't it? Do good. Do good in your use of time. Do good with the way that you treat your employees. Do good with the way that you respond to your spouse. Do good in a community that denies God. Man, find ways to do good. Don't wait on somebody to come up and tell you, look, uh, friend, I've got three ways this week that you can do good. Uh, number one, you can do good by helping a stranger. Number one, you can do good by helping someone you don't care for. And number three, you can do good to me, okay? I, I had a hard time coming up with the third one, and so I chose myself. No. Pray. Ask God. 
God, how do you want me to do good? God, how do you want us as a church to be known? What, what good things do you want us to do in our community? If the charge is to do good, then the question we must ask is, what good things can we do for God? Spend time and ask God what good things that he would lead you to do, what things he would call you to do. Do good. Now, these people were rich, and as we've already established, you and I are rich. Now, this is probably the only time somebody's going to tell you that today, but you, friend, are rich. Congratulations. Don't don't book any vacations based upon that declaration. You're still going to have to pay for it. But, but you have food, you have clothing, you're rich, okay? So Paul writes and he says, do good, be rich in good works. Be rich in good works. They were known for being rich. People would recognize them in the community for the way they dress, for the way they talk. For, you would recognize that they lived and they, they worshipped in house churches, and so when they went into somebody's house, they're like, look at these columns, this is gorgeous. You know, did, 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 did Solace do this work? You're like, no, he was busy, it was his brother, I don't want to go there. The building process was really awkward. And they said, but it's just gorgeous, and they were rightly recognized for where they lived as being rich. It's just like any town, you have section where poor people live, and you have section where rich people live. Everybody knew they were rich. Everybody knew that they had, had value based upon those things they had. Their riches. But look at this. Don't miss this. They knew how much money they had. They knew what their, their value was, probably down to the denarius, probably down to the cent for us, Okay? But Paul writes them, he says, look, your richness isn't found in these things, but your richness is found in good works. He told them to go and to do good works, and then he said, be rich in good works. Be rich in good works. Let somebody look at you and determine value according to how many good works you're doing. Now, if somebody were to come up to any one of us in this sanctuary and say we were using the, the regular definition of what it is to be rich. And they walk up and they say, let me ask you a question, friend. Are you rich? <laughs> you just kind of laugh and respond and say, not, not really. I mean, this morning for 30 minutes I was, but, but reality has stuck in and, and, and I'm just not rich anymore. And they say, okay, you're not rich. But let me ask you a question. As you evaluate and you process your value according to what this passage is telling us, are you rich in good works? Are you rich in good works? I mean, it's a real problem for us that, w- that we read this passage and, and that question comes to us. And, and I remember thinking to myself as I was going over that this week, I thought, of all the times for there not to be a middle class rich, right? And somebody says, are you rich? You're like, I'm middle class in good works. And so the question is so difficult for us to respond that some of us, even though that we are comfortable, we are taken care of, and, and, and we're not wanting for things, we certainly don't want for the necessities of life. But when the question turns to us and says, are you rich in good works? We've got to go way back. We're digging way back into the memory banks and thinking of those things that we've done recently that could possibly possibly be understood as being being rich in good works 
See, what I'm, ter- what I'm terribly afraid of is that most of us will go through this and we will hear this and, 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 and we'll suffer some type of guilt, some type of, of, of culpability at, at hearing this thing that we're supposed to be rich in good works. But then you walk outside and, 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 and the rush of cold air comes in and you completely block it out of your mind. Because that's so much more comfortable. It's so much more encouraging, and it makes for such a better lunch, right? Because nobody wants to go to lunch and, you know, just kind of sheepishly look across the table and say, could you, could you pass more chips and salsa? You know, you want to you engage in, in witty banter. You want to have this conversation, which really doesn't touch on any of these things, because it is uncomfortable to evaluate our lives and to ask difficult questions. But let that question continue to ramble around in your mind. Let that question permeate deep into your soul. Are you rich in good works? Now these people evaluated themselves and and surely they recognized the riches that they had that the world recognized. But they, they, they were struck by their bankruptcy. They were struck by the absolute poverty present in their lives when faced with the question of good works. And so Paul charges them. He says, be generous. Be generous. He says, look, you've you've got money. Be generous. Be rich. Be rich in good works by doing what? By sharing the wealth. By using those things that God has entrusted you to you to bless those around you. Man, what are you good at? What can you do for the kingdom of God? Take those things. God didn't give them to you so that you'd feel good about yourself. He gave them to you so that you would use them for other people's benefit. Take those things God has given you and use them so that others might be blessed by God through you. To be generous. Then he uses this word. He says, be ready to share. Generosity is this this process and act of giving stuff away, but ready to share really portrays this this disposition and this this attitude that says, man, I am ready to do something. I am ready to affect change in someone's life. But when we ask the question of ourselves and we address our society and probably address those of us in this church and said, look, if God called you to be generous and to give money away, could you do it? You said, man, I am generous. I'd love to give money away. But I can't. But I can't. See, I, I, Matt, I would love to be able to do this, but I've got obligations. I've got debts. You see, sadly, so many of us are saddled with, with education debt, with house debt, with credit card debt, with car debt. We've done nothing but, uh, but accumulate stuff around us that is, is It is our master. It's the thing that we are beholden to. You can miss church on Sunday, but you better not miss a payment on that loan. Some of us is so pursued accumulating stuff and bringing stuff into our household and all of these things that we are, in fact, as the Proverbs say, we are a slave to the lender. We have no freedom. We can't begin to be ready to share because we are already given to the paying back of these loans, to the paying back of these debts. And some of us need to work to dig ourselves out 
from underneath this debt which is crushing us and tearing us down so that God can use us to bless those around us. He tells them to be generous and ready to share. And he tells them, says, look, this is the outcome of that. In doing these types of things, you are storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future. Now, this is what Jesus was talking about in Matthew 6. Matthew 6, 19, Jesus speaking, he said these things. He said, do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart is also. Paul writes Timothy, he says, Timothy, look, you need to get these rich people to buy into the understanding that, that life is more than the here and now. That the things they do affect more than the here and now. And then in doing good and being rich in good deeds and, and being generous and ready to share, they are storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future. He effectively argues this. That in doing these things, engaging in benevolent activity, engaging in kindness, doing good deeds, doing these things, they are making an assurance of their salvation. They're not saving themselves, they're pointing to the assurance of that salvation. Do you understand that? You can't save yourself. There's no amount of, of good deeds, there's no amount of money that if you had that you could give away that God would say, oh my goodness, they gave away a billion dollars. I'm going to move in salvation and save them. I'm so impressed. God's not impressed. But in doing these things, you point to the surety, to the foundation for the future. And Paul gives us the purpose in the second half of, of verse 19. He says, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Jesus, in John 17, entered into this, this high priestly prayer, and in that he gave us a definition for eternal life. He says, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. You see, to have eternal life is to, is to know Jesus, and, and Paul has defined that life which is truly life for us in verse 12 of chapter 6, when he told Timothy to fight the good fight of faith, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. He's already told him that he is to take hold of eternal life. Friends, effectively, as we look towards the future, the second coming of Jesus, or our death in returning to heaven, we recognize that eternal life is right now. We recognize that eternal life is right now. That as God has effected change in you, that as He has called you to salvation, that God calls you into the living of eternal life today. So when we turn to the subject of money, it becomes a difficult thing because we all think... I'll be generous later when I'm in a better place to be generous. I'll, I'll be generous after I pay off these bills. I'll, I'll, be, I'll be generous with those things that God has given me when I catch more time, or maybe I, I think you're a little more worthy of my generosity. In closing, think about the generosity of God. God was generous to us in this way. 
in that while we were yet sinners, in that while we were yet set apart from God, when we were lost in our sin, we were drunk with sin. He sent Christ to redeem those who hated him, who moved away from him, who pursued only their end, and who were acting selfishly. God calls us to follow in his pattern of generosity in helping those out who cannot return our favor, who cannot do anything to offer thanks, but they can only receive the gift. Let me pray for us.